Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host this week, Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber. There's no Alex this week. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you, though, because boy, oh boy, we had a whole production meeting like we always do, picked a bunch of fascinating stories, and then today, on Thursday when we record, more news happened. It's really been quite the week. I know. I had, you know, fantasies of it's only you and me. Let's take this show fully off the rails, make it an all Bravo. Who knows? We could have done some crazy things. We could have had Bravo. We could have thrown in some ghosts. We could have talked about more (laughs) movies, all the stuff we want. But no, instead. The news cycle. Well, let me begin with something that many people find scary, and that was the Supreme Court leak. Harken back to last year when the Supreme Court had that draft opinion in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization released, unprecedented the size of that leak. That's, of course, the case that ultimately overturned Roe versus Wade. Well, just today, mere, what, like an hour before we started recording this, it came out that the Supreme Court's investigation into that leak cannot identify who leaked the draft. The Supreme (sighs) Court Marshal had been looking into it. Yeah, I know, I know. The Supreme Court Marshal had been investigating who among more than 80 people that had access to the document could have actually leaked it to Politico, which is where it went. But that that Marshal said that it's not possible to determine who the leaker is or even how it was leaked. And basically, uh, there were like 90 interviews of, of people. No one confessed and none of the forensic evidence can pin this on anyone. I'm sure the term will get into this, um, so we don't need to spend too much time here. But this is not the update I was hoping to get on that whole thing. (laughs) Yeah, I feel the same. I was very, I mean, I think everyone's, it's it's quite the mystery about how something so dramatic happened. So it really does feel like a letdown that the answer is just like, uh, we don't know. We can't tell. Um, Just not what we wanted. Uh, We also, though, I think have another news update that you wanted to bring to the table. Yeah. Very shortly before I got the SCOTUS news alert on my phone, I got another push notification. This one was about Alec Baldwin. So prosecutors announced this morning, well, this morning for me in L.A., that they'll (laughs) be— They'll be charging Alec Baldwin with involuntary manslaughter for the fatal shooting of cinematographer Helena Hutchins. That happened last year on the set of, or I guess more than a year ago on the set of Rust. The Santa Fe County District Attorney's Office had appointed a special prosecutor to help with that case. And she said today that they've determined it was Baldwin's duty to ensure the revolver was safe to handle. Um, And then the armorer on the set, that's the person who was in charge of of handling all those firearms and storing them and everything, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, she's also being charged with involuntary manslaughter. That's a really interesting development because we've been following the fallout in the legal realm of that really tragic incident for some time now. And it did seem like Alec Baldwin was trying to heavily position himself to sort of push the blame off onto others. And I guess some prosecutors are just not seeing it that way. So that will be one to watch as it moves forward. It will. But before we even get into the meat of the show, I do also want to plug, we had an incredible interview with our senior cybersecurity reporter, Ben Kochman. He has been following 
a case that really everyone should be paying attention to um, where the SEC is trying to get the name of clients from Covington and Burling that were affected by a cybersecurity breach. And the firm is saying, no, we're not going to give you those names. Um, But it's a really, really pivotal case uh, for, you know, the legal industry and cybersecurity regulation in general. So definitely stick around for that. Yeah, I love talking to Ben about that because it really is sort of like a brawl of some titans. We've got SEC, a big time government enforcer. And then on the other side, you have a giant big law firm. And there's a lot of butting heads going on right now about just how much information the SEC can get. So great to have talked about that with Ben. Okay, so now, though, as if all that wasn't enough, (laughs) I want to get into another crazy, interesting story. There is a growing scandal around a former New York State judge, Janet DeFiore, and that's over her around-the-clock chauffeur and protection detail that cost taxpayers in New York State about a million dollars a year while she was in office. And get this, there is no record of any written approval for this expense. Okay, so let's not wait any longer. What are the details on the security detail? I didn't even mean to make a pun here. Sure. Before I give you those detailed details, let me give a shout out to Frank Runyon, who is the reporter that wrote about this for Law360. Everybody should check out his stories. A lot of it's based on freedom of information requests. So fascinating stuff here. Here's what happened. For about seven years, Dee Fiore has had a state-funded protection detail assigned to her that's involved six to eight officers. The court officer detail began shortly after she took her uh, place as chief judge. That was back in 2016 and has continued with a rotating team of about two officers on duty full-time. This bit stood out to me about her drivers and sort of the chauffeur element of all of it. There were some odometer readings on a couple of sheets of paper that Frank got as part of those information requests. And it showed that DeFiori was driven over 54,000 miles in a brand new 2020 Chevy Suburban at the height of the pandemic. So we're talking late 2019, right as it was about to hit us, but all the way through late 2021, you wonder where she was going during that time. And records show that the vehicle was indeed chauffeur-driven and it had state-paid gasoline and that DeFiori didn't reimburse the state for any personal use there. DeFiori, that name rings a bell. I seem to recall she's been in some other trouble, but I do not recall exactly what it was. I believe we've even discussed her on Per Se before, if I'm recalling correctly. But this judge should sound familiar to many people because she resigned in August while under an unrelated ethics investigation. Her resignation halted that judicial misconduct investigation, but that one was about her allegedly seeking to tip the scales in a disciplinary proceeding against an outspoken critic of hers who's actually the court officer union's president. Ah, that's right. Yeah, so that one is also pretty messy. And interestingly, for this story we're telling today, her departure from the bench did not end her security detail. It continued even after her resignation, and that violates state court policies banning personal use of state vehicles, among other things. It's pretty important to note, I think, to understand the rest of what we're talking about, that previous chief judges did not keep a security and chauffeur detail like this after they left. Even retired federal judges don't get this kind of benefit. And a lot of state lawmakers are pretty upset about it. And they're looking into this expense. 
In particular, the Senate Judiciary Committee chair has demanded further explanation from the OCA, which handles um, the administration of the courts in New York. Okay, that you answered my next question, which was, do other chief state judges do this? No, they do not. How did we figure out that this was happening and it was costing a million a year? Yeah, so that million dollar a year estimate is based on court officers' salary schedules and overtime records that Law 360 obtained. New Yorkers may have paid between $3.5 million and $6.5 million for DeFiori's detail since 2016, according to our Law 360 estimate. And that's even maybe low because there would be additional costs for car leases, gas, tolls, maintenance. So all of that stuff would actually bump that bill even higher. Why did she even need this? I'm gathering that this is not super normal, the the level of the security detail, perhaps. Yeah, I don't want to make it sound like security details never happened for judges because obviously they do. And we've heard many stories over the years about threats or other bad things that can happen to people in the judicial system. So I don't want to downplay any of that. But I think you phrased it just right, Haley, that this level is not what's normal. So state court officials have provided only sort of vague answers about why a 24-hour security detail was necessary here. According to one former senior official that Frank talked to, the security detail matched what she had as a district attorney in Westchester County, but it's very different from previous chief judges. Several of those had just a single officer in a modest sedan that drove them around during business hours. So this is, the scope is very different here. The same former official told Law 360 that They didn't believe any formal review had ever been performed to justify the expansive security detail and the big expenses here. And that source recounted asking a chief administrative judge to conduct a new threat assessment for DeFiore, but that was shut down. Ooh, juicy. I know, right? So there can be legitimate reasons to have a high security detail with a judge. Like I said, we have in the past seen violence against judges. So there is a process for this where There's a standard threat-based assessment procedure, and that's how they approve what to do for protected judges. And the protocol is to have a special unit do a study of the threat, lay out a written record of what is deemed an appropriate response. And that can be a huge range of things. It can be something from as simple as saying, we're going to sit down the judge and inform them of a threat that's come up against them and, and urge them to be cautious, all the way up to sort of these fuller more detailed measures that include chauffeurs and security and all of that. So when asked whether or not the OCA, which is that administrative office of court administration is what that stands for, when they were asked if they had any record of an assessment that was ever done for DeFiori, an OCA spokesperson declined to answer directly to us. Instead, they said they used initial security assessments from Westchester to greenlight the detail. So this is unprecedented and potentially also not specifically authorized. Not that we can tell anyway. In response to Law 360's Freedom of Information requests, an attorney for the Office of Court Administration said they couldn't find a written authorization for DeFiori's detail, and that is at any time, um, during or after her tenure. And they also denied access to any security assessment records without saying if any of those type of records even exist. So. The OCA uh, had some other things they couldn't find when we asked for them. 
They couldn't find required vehicle trip logs for the last four months. That's the time since she's been out of office. And there are years of annual reports that were supposed to calculate DeFiori's use of her assigned vehicle that are also missing. So it's a lot of information we just don't know. To put this in perspective and continue to sort of outline how unusual this whole arrangement is, do you recall the tragedy in July 2020 when a New Jersey district judge had her son shot and killed in the doorway of her home and her husband was also wounded in that incident? Oh, yeah. That was terrible. It was terrible. And so in that instance, there was obviously a response um, to handle and try to further protect that judge. OCA representatives said that that incident actually sparked DeFiori to need continued full security. But many judicial experts that Frank spoke to for his reporting said that incident doesn't justify her extensive security detail because the New Jersey judge's own federal protective detail ended about a year after the incident. But DeFiori's continued. So that seems to be a big disparity here. And most of the security experts that were interviewed for Frank's piece agree that a detail longer than a year is essentially unheard of for a judge, except for sitting U.S. Supreme Court justices and even their security details end if they retire. Oh, that's very telling. What should we be watching for next as this continues to unfold? This is a bit tricky, to be honest, because as I said earlier, the investigation into the other problems DeFiori was facing basically got stymied when she she quit her post. And so there's questions about what will happen now because she is not currently a sitting judge. So we'll have to wait to see if OCA makes any moves to better explain the detail that was assigned to her or do any kind of investigation or audit. And also we'll have to see what state lawmakers do and how hard they push because there is a bit of uproar around this. And so there may be further action from the, the legislative side of things. So one to watch for sure. Now I want to talk about difficult clients. So basically we're going from difficult judges <laughs> to difficult clients. I like that yeah. transition. Yeah. It, we always have a vision here for these shows. <laughs> FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried has notoriously given his attorneys a bit of a headache from the start of the, you know, the fallout of FTX's collapse. But now he's really making their lives difficult with a blog post in which he laid out his potential defenses against the charges he's facing. Oh my. I want to be clear. We are not weighing in on the merits of the charges he's facing. I'm not weighing in on his character or on his intentions in any way. But it is safe to say that this is not the sort of attitude a defense lawyer wants to see from their client. One of our colleagues, Philip Bantz, actually spoke with some white-collar lawyers on Bankman-Fried's recent post, which was on Substack, and they told him it was undoubtedly a, quote, nightmarish scenario for his legal team. You know, I didn't think we'd have a Bravo tie-in here, but this does kind of make me think about, like, what attorneys are, were telling Jen Shaw all along while she was yes. out selling, like, free Jen merch. This has sort of that smack to it of, like, a really famous, well-known client who perhaps is not being as, you know, circumspect as their attorneys would prefer. But before we get into, like, the specifics of this blog post and all the stuff that's going on around it, let's 
go back a little to that FTX ordeal because I do think we talked about it right at the end of last year on Pro Se. And I do get that fuzzy December brain where I forget everything. So just kind of recap that for us. Absolutely. So as you probably recall, FTX filed for bankruptcy in November. It has been accused of funneling customer deposits to Alameda Research, which is a cryptocurrency lending firm that was also controlled and founded by Bankman Freed. FTX's new leadership has said that about $65 billion in unauthorized withdrawals were made from FTX and directed to Alameda. Since filing for bankruptcy, an additional $415 million in cryptocurrency has also been lost to hackers. That was a big update this week. Um, FTX told creditors that in, a, in the bankruptcy case. So Bankman Freed has also been indicted and charged with securities and wire fraud. Though right now he is free on a $250 million bond while he awaits his trial, which is set to kick off in October. Prosecutors say that he conspired to divert those funds to Alameda and then used the money for undisclosed venture investments, lavish real estate purchases, and large political donations. Okay, so that sets our groundwork there about what's being alleged and seems like Bankman Freed didn't like those allegations and really wanted to get into it with this blog post. So what did he say are his defenses? Yeah, he denied the allegations altogether and argued that he hadn't actually run Alameda for years. He also took aim at FTX's bankruptcy attorneys at Sullivan and Cromwell. He said they thwarted his efforts to make FTX customers whole and forced him to step aside and name a new CEO. What's more, in this blog post, he acknowledged that Alameda failed to sufficiently hedge against the risk of an extreme market crash. And he said most of his assets could be used to backstop FTX customers. He offered nearly all of his shares in Robinhood, which are worth about $450 million, but those have been seized by the Justice Department at this point. Okay, so uh, really not holding back with some bold stuff in this in this blog post. Tell me, I mean, I think I can guess some of the reasons that attorneys would be like, oh, I wish he hadn't done that. But lay it out for me. Like, what makes this so problematic? One former federal prosecutor told Law 360 that he's essentially communicating the legal team's future defense out loud and then locking them into it. So that, that was the one who called this a nightmarish scenario. Another former federal prosecutor said that the government loves when a defendant provides them with this much information. If any of it ends up inconsistent with documents or testimony from others, the government can say that it's proof that he's a liar who intended to defraud FTX's customers. And as for his offer to make customers whole, sure, that could be potentially help him when it's time for him to be sentenced. Maybe, you know, the judge will say, well, I'm glad you made this. It was kind of you to make this offer, so we'll give you a lesser sentence. But it's really not going to help him at all in establishing his innocence. So just all around, the blog post didn't do him any favors. Yeah, um, it certainly seems like the best option is to stay quiet when something like this is going on. Um, you did mention at the beginning of this, though, that he has been difficult to wrangle for attorneys this whole time. So can you give us a little 
play a little jazz on that. What else has he done that's been made him a tough client? The big thing that jumps to mind for me is he, right away, you may remember, he publicly apologized for messing up. And then when his attorneys <laughs> asked him to promise to never again admit to messing up, he told them to go fuck themselves. And he said this in an interview in late November. So he just, you know, it was volunteering that he had this conversation with his lawyers and he disagreed with their advice. He also had some more spicy things to say about his lawyers. Here's a quote from that interview. I don't think they know what they're talking about. I mean, whatever. They know what they're talking about in the extremely narrow domain of litigation. They don't understand the broader context of the world. I mean, the extremely narrow domain of litigation is quite important when you are being charged. So there's that. Yeah, I would I would say that's a fair a fair assessment. <laughs> uh, but yeah, sure enough, he's since then he's continued to give interviews to reporters and generally to speak publicly about the whole ordeal, which I have to imagine his attorneys are not uh, advising him to do. Um, and we still have nine months until his trial, so that's a lot of time for him to keep uh, blogging and tweeting and inviting reporters into his home. So I just want to say, you know, Godspeed to his lawyers over at Cohen and Gresser in New York. I mean, look, what is tough for the lawyers is great for the media. So it's at least true. someone wins in this scenario, and it looks like it's us. That's a nice little spin on that. I like that, Amber. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I will. Uh, I'll have to subscribe to that Substack. This month, the Securities and Exchange Commission sued law firm Covington and Burling, looking to reveal which of its clients were impacted by a 2020 cyber attack. The attack was attributed to Chinese spies, and the government says it needs the list to determine whether any securities laws were broken in the wake of the breach. But Covington is fighting back, arguing that the disclosure would run afoul of attorney-client privilege. Here to talk us through this fascinating showdown between the SEC and a big law giant is our own cybersecurity reporter, Ben Kochman. Welcome back to the show, Ben. Hi, thanks for having me. I think it was four years ago when I was last here, so maybe setting a record for longest time between appearances. <laughs> yeah, like a different world pre-pandemic, but we do have such an exciting one to talk about with you today. I'd love if we could just sort of start at the beginning of this saga. Can you tell us briefly about the breach in question? It's important to recognize that Covington and Burling was one of thousands of organizations across the globe that in some way were impacted by this breach, which actually started with a software flaw in a, a Microsoft email server product. And it's become clear, or the U.S. government has said that the Chinese military was behind this attack and used it to gain information about specific targets of geopolitical interest to the Chinese government. And so Covington and Burling was one of the many law firms, companies, businesses that use these email servers. And according to the court documents released this week, uh, there were certain 
attorneys at Covington and Burling whose email files were accessed, and, and in one case, someone's uh, work laptop hard drive was accessed. So it's certainly something that is on everyone's radar within the legal industry, and something that, but 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 something that we didn't really know the full extent of until just this week. And so now the SEC is seeking this court order to try and force Covington to reveal these firms that were affected. Why exactly does the SEC say that it needs this client list? Sure. So the SEC believes that it has a statutory obligation to investigate whether security laws were breached. And so in this case, that means after this cyber attack, a law firm like Covington and Burling had, I believe, roughly 300 clients whose data may have been accessed or they may have been involved in this breach to some degree. The SEC is trying to figure out whether anyone who accessed uh, confidential data or something like that could have used it to do insider trading or to do any sort of other activity that could be considered a, a violation of securities law. Covington has said, has countered that they don't believe the SEC has any evidence at this point that any securities laws were breached, and they've called it a phishing expedition and something that violates their obligations to uh, protect their clients. Yeah, I want to get more into why Covington is so upset about this request. And in particular, they've also made some arguments that the FBI already investigated this and they didn't ask for a client list. So can you kind of run down that disparity? Sure. Well, it goes to the difference in motivations, tactics of an agency like the SEC versus a law enforcement agency like the FBI. The FBI's approach has been to businesses. The backdrop of all this is that the FBI and other federal agencies believe that a vast majority of cyber incidents go unreported to the government. And they want more information so that they can better prepare other businesses and other potential targets to deal with these threats. So the FBI wants more information. The SEC wants more information. But the FBI, their priority is how do we find out who did this? Can we prosecute them? Uh, how do we prevent the next thing from happening? And, and in this case, the FBI, DOJ, DHS, they've all said that the Chinese government was behind this. And according to Covington, the FBI told them that it was narrowly focused on a few potential targets of, of geopolitical interest. Uh, if you look at the list of the lawyers who are at Covington and Burling, a lot of them are very connected in Washington, D.C. circles with the Biden administration. And so the idea is maybe the Chinese government would like some information about, maybe, I'm just speculating, maybe issues related to trade or, 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 or something else. The FBI's whole approach has been, please tell us about cyber attacks. Tell us after you've been hacked or just call us before you've been hacked so we can have an ongoing dialogue. And so it makes more sense from the FBI's perspective for them to agree to um, maybe as a condition of Covington disclosing information about the threat actor and which tactics they use, uh, information that did appear to prove valuable to the FBI, who was able to figure out um, who was behind the hack. It makes more sense for the FBI to make such a deal than it does for the SEC, which has a different mandate. 
the, the SEC feels like the only way that it can do its job is to have that full list of Covington clients who were affected. And that's where it just is a, it's a rock and a hard place for really both sides here because Covington feels like we cannot give up that information that violates our attorney client privilege and also the trust that we've built with our clients. And the SEC says, well, we need that information to do our job. So they're just butting heads here. And the ultimate fallout should be something that everyone in the legal industry is closely watching. So what we have here, as you said, are some really sharp battle lines. Can you tell us more about how important this move is for the SEC? Because I know you've written about how the agency itself is trying to grow its role as a watchdog on cybersecurity issues. You know, one of the frustrations amongst the business community and sources of general confusion is who in the government is in charge of cybersecurity? Because there are so many agencies that are throwing their hat into the ring and getting involved in their particular way. And the SEC, under its current chair, have made a big point about being more aggressive on cybersecurity. They're also working on these closely watched breach reporting rules that are expected to require any company to report a quote-unquote material cyber incident within four days, which is something that has drawn some backlash from the business community, but but is also something that is believed, uh, is expected to come into form in, in some shape or, or fashion. So the question now with this case with Covington is, is this a sign of an emboldened SEC and could a court decision in their favor embolden the agency's approach to dealing with these issues? Or could something ruling could a ruling against the SEC lead to a blowback in some way of of what it's trying to do? And potentially, I had one attorney tell me that they believe the SEC is showing hubris hubris here, and I don't I'm not sure they meant that in in a, in a positive way that they feel like the SEC is being so over the top here by trying to get this information without, you know, maybe they do have, if they do have evidence of insider trading or something like that, they have not disclosed it. But there isn't, there is a sense that there is some risk involved here with the SEC where a decision in their favor could be a boost to what they're trying to do and a ruling against them could could, uh, could hold them back to to some degree. Yeah, let's get more into the risks here. I know, um, you know, beyond the the attorney you just mentioned, some lawmakers and even a Republican SEC commissioner have uh, kind of voiced their objections to to what the SEC is trying to do here. What's everyone saying? I guess that's a great question. The SEC right now is majority Democrat. But one of the Republican commissioners actually gave an exclusive interview uh, to Law360. So shout out to one of our reporters, Jessica Corso, who got an interview with uh, with one of the Republican SEC commissioners who expressed some concern about whether the agency is overreaching in this case. 
Uh, the commissioner didn't want to get so into the details of, of what they believe and exactly what the evidence in the case is, but the fact that there is some dispute within the SEC about this, I guess is not entirely rare to see, but it does show that not everyone at the agency agrees that this is the right course of action. So as our cybersecurity expert, this one feels like it could have real ripples through many industries that could potentially be facing heightened scrutiny from the SEC after something happens, depending on how regulations roll out and how this case goes. What are you watching for next? Um, Are you just waiting to see how this resolves in court or are there any other big benchmarks we should have in mind as this unfolds? Well, it looks like they're going to set up a briefing schedule in this case. And really for now, I'm just looking at any sort of ruling from a judge or or even further argument about how this is all going to shake out. In terms of its wider effects, I think the big takeaway for me is that this is a rare chance to see the kind of conversations that happen behind the scenes all the time between law firms, companies, and the government. And frankly, us as reporters, the general public, we don't get to find out about these kind of conversations very much. Usually there's some sort of cyber incidents and there's these boilerplate press releases about it, and we don't get to know what really happened. And so what I'm really looking for here is just more information to throw back the curtain on these conversations that happen that are challenging on both sides for a company, uh, a law firm or other company that wants to protect its business and wants to protect its clients. And you know, they maybe they want to work with the government to some degree and they're, they're uncomfortable with how much is being asked for. And then the government, which feels, or government agency, which feels like it has its own job to do. So really, I I think it's something that the rest of the legal industry, who, as we know, law firms are one of the bigger targets of cyber criminals. So other law firms are looking out to see, hey, how is Covington going to handle this? But also businesses in general, the reality, the harsh reality is that cyber attacks are proliferating every year and continue to rise. And so a high-profile case like this could cast more light on what maybe the right way to communicate with a government agency is about this sort of thing and where things can go awry. Because nobody, Covington, the SEC, I think both parties would have rather this not play out in public like this. But that's, uh, that's the way it's going. Ben, this one is absolutely fascinating, and I'm going to be um, breathlessly waiting on more coverage as we uncover more and hear more about how this resolves. Thanks so much for coming on the show and breaking it down for us today. For sure. Anytime. Thanks. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Haley, I know you have a musical one for us. I do. Amber, I've managed to mention a lot of my passions on this show over the last year. But I'm really excited about this one. I'm so pleased that I've convinced the crew to allow me to talk about Lil Wayne. He's one of my favorite rappers. 
And as it turns out, he's a pretty litigious dude. Okay, Haley, I didn't know that he's one of your favorite rappers, for starters. And then I think you're going to be really disappointed in me. And maybe we need Alex. It's a bad week for him to be off because I'm familiar generally with the Lil Wayne discography, but I'm not a deep diver. I mean, I think I just know like some of the big hits. I was going to ask you about that. I forgive you. I can send you a playlist. Yeah, I might need it after the segment. You know, it's it's an interesting part of my listening habits that I still very regularly in the year of our Lord 2023 listen to Lil Wayne. Because one could argue that, you know, his latest records are not, they're not the Carter three, you know. Well, but, look, my feeling on this too is you are younger than me. And so I would maybe be better forgiven if it was a younger rapper. But I have no excuse, really. Like Lil Wayne's been around a long time and is right in my like, age demo for stuff I listened to over the years. So I, I, I just am going to need your playlist. That's the bottom line. Amber, it's never too late, never too late for you to get into Lil Wayne and never too late for us to mention him on the pod. So the reason that I'm able to shoehorn this in to the show this week is he just lost a $20 million lawsuit against his longtime attorney and manager but we can also get into some other suits he's filed over the years because I, as I was reporting out that the recent order that was issued, I, you know, did a little dive in the archives and boy, Wheezy has been busy. <laughs> okay, well, let's start with the recent one. What is this dispute with his attorney slash manager? Lil Wayne has lobbed a whole bunch of claims, really a laundry list of them, against prominent entertainment attorney Ron Sweeney. So I do want to mention, Sweeney is, he's a big shot in the industry. He is a former Sony Music executive who's worked with a bunch of big names, Eazy-E, DMX, P. Diddy, the list goes on. And he worked with Lil Wayne for 13 years until things went awry, they stopped working together, and then Lil Wayne filed this suit. So Lil Wayne said that Sweeney tricked him into hiring him even though Sweeney was administratively suspended from practicing law in California for brief periods of time around when he first hired him. And then Wheezy also says that Sweeney was not licensed to practice in New York but misrepresented that to him saying that he could practice in New York. And Lil Wayne, this is maybe the big one, this is where the dollar, the big dollar amount comes in, Lil Wayne also took issue with their fee arrangement. And in that arrangement, Sweeney got 10% of Lil Wayne's earnings. And Lil Wayne says that he earned more than $200 million over the 13 years that they worked together. So that's where that $20 million comes from. First of all, $200 million is a lot of earnings. But I also just want to say, and I don't know, inform me, LA uh, resident, I just always had in the back of my head that like, 10%, that seems like what managers, agents, a lot of attorneys, I mean, it seems like a common fee. It seems that way to me too. But hey, I guess I'm not out here uh, booking managers for myself. So I, <laughs> I really can't it, speak to it. Yeah. But back to this case, a New York state judge threw out this suit in 2021. And then Lil Wayne appealed. And this week, an appellate court refused to resurrect that suit. The panel said Lil Wayne hasn't adequately alleged that Sweeney misled him or caused him any harm during the time they worked together. 
it noted that Lil Wayne did not object to that 10% fee for 13 years. And it did say that the fee is not so egregious that it would need to scrutinize that amount more. So, so yeah, I mean, the court kind of agrees that this is perhaps a standard fee or at least not egregiously high. Right, at least standard enough for somebody that is arguably a very prominent attorney in that field. So there's a must be a range of possible fees that a, a judicial oversight would be like, yeah, that seems okay. Okay, so that one, I do also think it's very interesting that the court was like, yeah, I mean, you were you were paying this fee for 13 years, man. Like, yeah, <laughs> you're going to object. It's a little late in the game. But you also said Lil Wayne has been litigious in the past. I know one thing I did ask you when we were kind of talking about the story off air was, oh, is it just a bunch of like, you know, IP litigation where people are mad about him sampling or anything like that, which seems like it happens to musicians a lot. But you said there's some more spicy stuff in here. There is. Yeah. And certainly he does have a lot of those in his past as well. But like you mentioned, probably all, every major artist does. I, think I do so, want to run through sure. a, a few of these that, uh, that Lil Wayne himself filed. So in 2016, he sued Universal Music accusing the label of diverting millions of dollars that belonged to him for his ownership in records by Drake, Nicki Minaj, and Tyga. And he said that the label was diverting those funds to repay debts that he didn't actually owe. Oh, okay. And then a year before that, in 2015, his record label, Cash Money, which admittedly I cannot even read the words Cash Money without hearing his voice saying it <laughs> in that way at the beginning of every track. But in any event, I digress. So Cash Money sued Tidal, which is the music streaming service that Jay-Z brought into the world. Cash Money claimed that the label owns the rights to a Lil Wayne album that was released exclusively by Tidal. I actually think that one's pretty interesting because wasn't there a period where Lil Wayne was pretty mad at Jay-Z? And I think there was some like list that had come out of the greatest rappers of, I don't know, the 21st century or something. I don't know what the period was, but he <laughs> publicly was like, yeah, but not Jay-Z. He should yes. be on that list. Yes. <laughs> I, I do seem to recall this. I used to have a Twitter list that was just um, rap beefs. And oh, they're I, great. I would add rappers to it who were beefing with each other. Sure. I need to get back into that. Um, in any event, back to back to yeah. uh, tell us more about his litigious activities that take yeah. these rap, rap beefs from just like snarky comments in an interview and some like barbs on Twitter, something else. Indeed. So that same year in 2015, Lil Wayne actually sued Cash Money, his own label, for a breach of contract, saying that it withheld millions of dollars from his album, The Carter Five. And then the last one I wanted to talk about, this one wasn't filed by him, but I want to mention it because it's another fight with a lawyer. Also in 2015. Bad busy year, year for him. Yeah, busy year. His former attorney, Michael B. Kramer, sued him and sued Cash Money and accused them of refusing to pay more than $375,000 in legal fees. He does seem to hate those fees. I mean, that's consistent, at least, from the, the <laughs> new action to this, this is that one from years ago. Yeah, quite the list there. It is. You know, Wheezy's a busy guy. I, <laughs> I keep saying this, but he's out here earning $200 million. He's out here beefing. 
And he's out here filing lawsuits. So keep at it, Wheezy. We love Haley, you. I'm going to expect two things from you as we wrap up today's show. One, going to need that playlist. And two, going to need that list of rap beefs. I think that's where we can, you know, really up my game in my knowledge. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to send them your way. Well, thanks for holding down the show with me today, Haley. Really appreciate it. Thank you. We also have a bunch of other people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Keller Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guest this week was Ben Kochman and our contributing reporters, Frank Runyon, Philip Vance, Hannah Alborazzi, Jessica Corso, and Jimmy Hoover. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Keller Marcano. And if you like Pro Se, we'd love it if you could leave us a written review wherever you're listening. That's how other people find our show. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about, and we really covered a lot of ground today. So check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.